Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with Dr. Kim Golding on her entrance into the world of dyadic developmental psychotherapy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And the interview I have for you today is going to be a real treat. I am going to be speaking with Dr. Kim Golding. Kim is a psychologist who is based in the UK, and she's been very instrumental in bringing dyadic developmental psychotherapy to the United Kingdom. And she also has written a lot of books, either contributed or solely authored, I believe it's at least 14 books. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. So she has been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years, and she has a specialized in a range of things, including working with children with Down syndrome, sleep difficulties, and children who are living within or adopted in the looked after system in the United Kingdom. And one of the things that she says is that she has always had an interest in working with parents to develop their parenting skills tailored to the specific needs of the children that they are caring for. And I think that's something a lot of us are trying to help parents with. And so without further ado, um, I'm gonna pause here for just a minute and Kim will be joining us very soon. Well, hello listeners. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Buckwalter here, and I'm going to be continuing an interview with Dr. Kim Golding, who is based in the UK and has been very involved with DDP, also a prolific writer of 14 books, like both of us lost count, but we think that's how many. So so thank you for continuing this uh, conversation, Kim. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be back. Yes. So, so Kim, I want to ask you, what, what did DDP, Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, bring to you that was different than what you were already doing? And um, I think that will also help listeners who are maybe less familiar with DDP understand a little bit about its unique features. Because you, like many people, including myself, came upon this model because it felt like work that we were doing was not effective. It was work that was effective with other children, but we were struggling to impact children with um, disrupted attachments and traumatic backgrounds. So what was it about DDP that was like different? Like, whoa, this is this is something that might help. And I guess I guess there's lots of strands to that as well. You know, the, the first and most immediate one is it took me into a much deeper understanding of the emotional world of ourselves as parents and of the children mm-hmm. and the need to 
to take that into account, to connect with that. Um, what in DDP we call affective reflective, conversations need to be to be both affective and reflective. So we talk about AR dialogues, you know, and I guess my background experience prior to you know, developing understanding of the DTP model was very cognitively focused and cognitive behavioral focused. And I think that was the missing piece for me that I was, you know, not really understanding the depths of emotional disruption that the trauma causes for these children and disruption to their connections um, with themselves. Who am I? Am I lovable? Am I someone who is worthwhile? And to the others, are you? available are you dependable will you love me will you abandon me you know and it was it was that emotional world experience rather than the world of thinking that we needed to to take into account when we're providing the support and therapies that these children need and it's, it's more of a bottom-up approach i guess than a top-down yes. you think of cognitive behavioral therapy as being quite top-down yes and obviously you know it doesn't doesn't miss out the emotional needs of the children and there's some really good cbt based programs out there um, but not to the depth that the ddp model brought in uh, and then um, i know when dan was developing the model he met colwyn trevathan um, who works in scotland in the united kingdom uh, and has developed all the work around intersubjectivity mm-hmm. and, you know, and that was you know wow that was a revelation Edtronic's work looking at parent-infant interactions and looking at ruptures and repairs and and just starting to understand that whole level of emotional parenting, um, which just, you know, needed to be understood to support these children. And then, of course, on the, the next layer on that came in was the neuroscience, which has, you know, been developing rapidly over the last 10, 15, 20 years. So Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory um, John Balin who Dan has, has done a lot of writing with you know his understanding of the brain and the way that block care and block trust can develop when reciprocity is lost in relationships you know all of this understanding brought another layer in yes so the yes. model is is so much richer because yes. of those, those different layers of development and understanding mm-hmm. yes and, at its heart, it does. It comes down to you know, understanding the nervous system for sure, but also just understanding the emotional world, not just of the child. You know, the child has their emotional world, which is for these children often full of fear, fear of loss, separation, not being good enough. But the parent also has their emotional world. The teacher also has their emotional world, and those worlds can get triggered by the parent by the child's difficulties so parents can move into a state of and teachers we all can move into a state of block care where the we're not being nourished by the reciprocal relationship with the child because the child is is moving away from reciprocity moving into more controlling ways of being because that feels safer to them but that doesn't provide what's needed to keep to keep us as adults emotionally available to the children we tend to become blocked so how do we stay open and engaged to those children at these times when you know so I've worked with um, parents especially you know adoptive parents who've had you know 18 years of rejection from their child one every day you know I don't want you I don't want you as a parent you know how do you sustain parenting a child 
who at some point in the day will be rejecting you. There may be other times where they're, you know, they're reaching for comfort, but, you know, that rejection layer is always there. How does that parent sustain their emotional world enough to be able to stay available to the child when the child is saying, hmm, not sure I want this. Yes. Yeah, so Kim, you really do have a wonderful way with words. I love how you said that the parent isn't being nourished by reciprocal interactions, you know, and that is the fuel that we need to keep going. You know, yeah, it's sort of like expecting an empty gas tank to run the car like there's there's the fuel is missing i think um the idea of blocked care has been such an important contribution from ddp yeah and especially uh, john balin's work yes how it's it's biological you know it, it's much more than behavior Yes, behavior yes. is blocked. It, it's at such a deep biological level, and his understanding of, of the brain and helping yes. us make sense of that has been so helpful, and actually so reassuring for the parents that this is, you know, their caregiving system shut down. Yes, at a biological level, it's not their intent. It's not their motivation. It's yes something that happens when you don't get enough oxytocin and dopamine. Yes, yes. Yes, and I think um, earlier, I believe in our conversation yesterday, you mentioned um, behavior management versus behavior support. Mm -hmm. And could you talk to our listeners about the nuance difference you see with that and why you wanted to make that change? Because I just know you have some good reasons for that. Yes. Um, you know, behavior management sort of suggests that the adult does to the child. Yes. In terms of managing their behavior. And what children need is the parent being with the child in supporting their behavior. So, you know, the, the big difference for me between support and management is that is that change, is that subtle difference between I am doing this to you to I am with you and we're doing this together. So if you think about applying consequences to children, you know, obviously children need consequences for behavior. That's, you know, that's what makes the world go around, isn't it? Yes. We, we learn from what happens afterwards. Those in traditional parenting, those consequences tend to be given coercively. That I'm, not, I'm not meaning that means punitively necessarily, uh, although some, some parenting is punitive, but not necessarily. But it's like, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. This happened, therefore this is now going to happen. Imagine the difference when the parent gives the child time, really helps them to regulate emotionally, helps to make sense of what the child's experience has been so the child feels understood and then what are we going to do about this? And that layer of regulation and understanding leads the child to want to make a difference. I want to make this better. I want to make this right. So you can figure out the consequences together. What should we do? What would you like to do now? You know, and often that involves repairing relationships because yes. generally these behavioral challenges have harmed relationships in some way. So, you know, one little boy I knew, which I write about in one of my books, you know, when his his mother, had, his adoptive mum had sat with him and done that regulation, really understood, helped the child 
you know, have their have their emotional experience of what had gone wrong accepted. The child was then able to say, but I don't want my friends who I hit to be hurting. I'm, I don't want them to be upset with me. And the parent could say, yeah, I get that. Of course you don't. You, you know, you're a lovely boy. You like your friends. You know? And then he, he said, can I make them cards? You know, hmm. you know, so the consequence becomes something figured out between them rather than something imposed on them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, that's the essence of the difference between management right. and support. Yeah, so, you know, co-regulation with the child, collaboration with the child, rather than just imposing this thing. Yeah, so it's probably best encapsulated in another graphic that I've done called Parenting in the Moment, which is actually in um, the, the parenting book after Nurturing Attachment. So I, so I wrote the Nurturing Attachment program, but I also wrote the Foundations for Attachment Training Resource and a book that goes with that. Um, I never remember the titles of my books. I'm pretty rubbish at that. Parenting with Everyday Parenting with Security and Love. So in those resources, we, I, I developed this model, helped again, uh, actually... The, the people who helped me put this model together were was a residential home in the UK who I was doing some DDP training with. And I kept saying, you, you know, you need to do this. And they, oh, and you need to do this. And they said, hang on, Kim, hang on, look, we need to work this out. And we ended up working out this model of, you know, steps, sequences, you know, that you can go through. Uh, and that became parenting in the moment. And, you know, it really it really articulates what we've just been talking about. You, obviously, you start with what do we need to do in the immediate moment to make everyone safe? So you do, you know, you know, if two children are hitting each other, the first thing you do is separate them and stop the hitting, you know, so you have to do whatever you need. But then the message is slow down, which is a big message in DDP. Everything is about slowing down. Slow down and, and notice yourself. Are you regulated? Are you moving into defensiveness? Can you take a breath? Can you have compassion for yourself? Now notice your child. Where are they in terms of their regulation? What regulatory support do they need? No point going to behaviour until the child is regulated. They'll learn nothing. So what do we need to do to help the child to regulate? Then we bring in pace, which, well, all the way through we're bringing in pace. Yeah. But, you know, the the attitude of pace comes to the fore, which is um, Dan's attitude of playfulness, acceptance, curiosity and empathy. And particularly the curiosity of empathy starts to come. So at the regulation phase, you're doing lots of acceptance and empathy, but you bring in the curiosity, you know, what was going on. But notice at this stage, you focus on the child, not the other people that were involved or the other objects if they've thrown a chair across the room you're not why did you throw that chair it was what was going on for you what feelings did you have what emotional experience did you have so the child starts to feel really understood you know the little boy with the cards you know he he'd hit two boys in the playground you know so you start with you know you were feeling really angry I was and that anger gets totally accepted your feeling is just your feeling it's neither right nor wrong so the child gets this sense of my anger makes sense but of course the way he demonstrated that anger cannot be accepted but he knows that yeah he knows hitting his friends is wrong yeah so when he feels really understood in his anger he can say but i hit them and i hurt them so now we can moving into the behavioral support 
Mm-hmm. In a way that he's ready. He's, I mean, if you want to put it in, in in terms of series of shame and guilt, he's he's not in shame. He's in guilt. When we're feeling guilt rather than shame, we're much more likely to feel remorse and to be able to make amends. So, because this has all been done in a non-shaming way, he's been validated for his experience. He's not stuck in shame, as so many of these children are. He's experiencing guilt, and guilt is is magic because you can you can say, "Let's figure out how we make this better," and the yes. child is ready to do that. So the consequences then become collaborative. Yes, I think that's one of the. You know, if I had to pick out some big points from my own training in DDP, that difference between shame and guilt was so important because many times parents or caregivers, teachers, whoever, they're trying to induce guilt, which they think will lead to behavior change when really they're activating shame, which does just the opposite, Um, can sometimes either bring on shutdown or increase acting out or or whatever. I think that's such a good, um, important distinction that people need to begin to understand. Yeah, for sure. There's, you know, I know there are lots of people talking about that. Brené Brown is is obviously doing a lot of that, and you know, other people. So, you know, this is not, you know, revolutionary. You know, this is stuff that we do know, but it's just making making it accessible to those on the front line who are parenting and supporting these children, isn't it? And that, yes. happens, you know, I mean, Dan and I came up with the shade of shame of shield in one of our books, which I think people found really helpful. The idea that when you're in shame, you defend, especially when that shame is not being regulated yes adults, and that shame is getting bigger and more toxic you defend against it and and the behaviors you use to defend against it are things like lying minimizing blaming and raging which is a shield you know if we can start to recognize that those are um, the impact of shame and we need yes. to regulate the shame where in traditional behavioral support we try and deal with those behaviors you mustn't lie if you lie there's a consequence you know you you have to take responsibility for your behavior well these children can't because they're full of shame which is about i'm a bad kid yes when we can regulate that they can start to feel get a sense from us that we don't see them as a bad kid we see them as having made a mistake yes start you know they can start to regulate with our support and then they can move to a feeling of guilt which is not about i'm a bad kid it's about I've got something wrong and I want to make it better. Hence yes. the remorse and being able to make amends. So that's, you know, that understanding the shield of shame and the, the importance of regulating is just so, so important. And it's that level is so often missed out, both in schools and in parenting. Mm-hmm. So, Kim, I'm going to back us up even further to something so basic that it may not have occurred to you about dyadic developmental psychotherapy in terms of our discussion about what makes it different, but that word dyadic, yeah. that you're working with parents and children together. Now, this wasn't a big leap for me because I was already TheraPlay therapist, mm-hmm. but I do know prior to being exposed to TheraPlay, um, I was doing play therapy with children, their parents were maybe in the waiting room or something like that. I was not seeing parents and children together. So what about that 
it must have been second nature to you based on your previous work um, that you've already shared about. But what about that dyadic piece? Yeah, it's so, it's so important. And in some ways, it's so obvious when you stop and think about it, as you're saying, isn't it? That, you know, if a child fundamentally is hurting in their attachment experiences, yeah, then we have to work with that attachment layer. And that includes the parenting. Yes, so, you know, sorry, not just includes parenting, includes parent support. So bringing them into the therapy room when they're regulated and able to, to support their child just makes total sense. Yes. Yeah, sometimes we miss the obvious, you know, going back all the way to John Bowlby, he was told by his supervisor when he asked to meet with a, a parent of a child that was really struggling, absolutely not. You're forbidden to. And, uh, you know, later found out that there was very significant things happening with that parent. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And it can be so often missed. But of course, the work becomes more complex and complicated. You know, working one to one with a child in a therapy room is in a way more straightforward than working with a child and parent because you have to bring those parents along with you and you have to understand those parents you know and that takes us into for example cultural differences you know uh, you know bearing in mind that attachment theory is is based on a western psychology model you know how do we use this model in a way that's adaptable to parents from whatever their you know where their heritage has come from and taking into account that you know they're and respecting their cultural ways of parenting whilst we're trying to also fit that alongside our beliefs about what these children need so there is another layer of complexity there uh, around culture and identity and experience you know so, so it's you know it sounds it sounds very straightforward and very obvious bring the parent into the room with the child and of course that is going to make a much more richer therapeutic intervention but it does bring its own layer of complexity and humility on the therapist's part who's working with that parent that you know i don't know everything here yes i have another expert in the room with me yes an expert on that child who's an expert on their own culture their yes. own identity, their own community, that we're bringing this child up within, or they are bringing this child up within. And, being, and it reminds us when we stop bringing the parent into the room that we have to be respectful of that as well. Yes, yes, it's a, it's much more to keep track of with two human beings in the room than one. And, you know, looking at- When we have both, when we have a pair of parents. Yes, so there's yeah. three, there's three. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's it, um, being aware and sensitive to everything that is happening um, is a lot. Um, so, and I do think some therapists who are accustomed to working individually with children are somewhat intimidated by the prospect. Yeah, absolutely. Understandably. Mm. I know I was. <laughs> Well, they think for lots of reasons, aren't they? You know, yes. you suddenly got another adult who's watching what you're doing. Right. That's the first level, right? Well, Somebody else is watching this. This is not what they imagine therapy to look like. And actually, where's the magic wands that are meant to fix everything in therapy? And you have to kind of say they don't exist, you know. So, yes. Yeah, yeah imposter syndrome can be quite high, can't it? In terms yes. Of, yeah, so we have to get over that. Um but it just makes so much sense, doesn't it? You know, 
we're, yes. we're not what you know there's such a myth about therapy and the way therapy fixes things yeah uh, you know and it's a very long complicated journey the therapeutic process and if you're not bringing the parents along with you for that child then you know what's a, an hour in a therapy room going to do against 24 7 with a parent you know it's it just makes yeah, to me it's just like a no-brainer yes yes well kim before we end today i would like if you could share a bit about um some of the resources you've developed we haven't spoken much about you know the resources you've developed for educators but if you could just highlight some of those and you know, maybe share your website or if somebody would like to attend a training with you. I don't know if you're actively doing trainings. Like, tell us, how do we get more information and learn more from you about your work, Kim? Yeah, so, I, yeah, so we've, I've, yeah, I think I've mentioned the Nurturing Attachments Training Resource and the Foundations for Attachment Training Resource. So those are my programs for parents. Okay. Uh, nurturing Attachments very much written with um, parents who are not parenting their birth children. Yes. Yeah. So foster carers, adopters, kinship carers. Um, foundations for Attachment going a bit beyond that and also thinking about biological parents who are wanting to parent in a different way as well. Yes. Um, but along the way, um, in the service I was working within when I was within the NHS, the National Health Service, uh, the service that I helped set up, we worked with it very closely with an education team, and they were wanting to some resources for the teachers and educators that they were working with. And out of that came our observational checklist tool, which is in three different volumes, one for preschool, one for school age, and one for adolescent. The preschool and school age are just tweaked. They're very similar books, but tweaked for the different age groups adolescence includes more stuff about adolescence as you'd imagine okay and are these like is it like a curriculum someone could you know like Chaddock where I work we have a foster care program so is that is this like a curriculum someone purchases and they can offer it it's more a tool so it's a observational checklist that that educators can take and and, you know observe what's going on for the child and have Mm -hmm. something to guide them in the way that they support that child okay for educators okay good yeah Yeah, we have a we have yeah um we have a school at Chaddock too so I'm always trying to and, and do a lot of training with educators so I mean, I do think that's an important aspect. Um, well, I, I don't want to close this interview without, um, you know, mentioning a, a big award that you received for your work with um, children. And it's the CBE award. I'm going to let you explain what that means because I don't want to mess it up. So could you, I know you're very modest and humble, but could you please share about that award? <laughs> well, it was a huge surprise, I must say. So in, in this country, we have a system of awards that are given to us by royalty, I guess, the royal family. And- yes alongside with the government called the um, Order of the British Empire. Leaving aside the worries about the word empire there, they are awards that use you know, really kind of recognise excellence within the country. And there's a whole series of these from, you know, MBE, OBE, CBE up to knighthood. Yes. And, yeah, my colleagues nominated me for one of these awards and um, they 
yeah, gave me a, what we call CBE, which is a command of the Order of the British Empire. Yes. Wow. That's that's just fantastic and so deserving. Um, Kim, you've just really poured your professional life into this group of children and so many of us have um, benefited from that, most importantly, the children. So thank you so much for um, all the work that you have done in helping the lives of children who've had extreme trauma in their histories. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to come and share share some of that with you. Yes, thank you. Well, goodbye for now. And folks, Kim has also a great website that so you can just Google her and also find these additional things. So thank you for your time today, Kim. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.